0: This is not a race against the machines. This is a race with
1: the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. The following February 7th talk was entitled, Can a Computer Write Poetry? Can a Machine Create a Beautiful and Sublime Artwork? It took place at McGill's Building 21 and was led by Viola Ruzia, Claudia Rayhart,
2: and Olivier Dions.
1: All right, so welcome everyone to this new Building 21 uh, talk. This one is called, it's part of the M-Notcher Talks. And the M-Notcher Talks were actually created by Viola, who's here with us today, along with Claudia. And we're going to discuss what exactly is creativity, and more specifically, can a computer write poetry? What does it mean when machines create artwork that is actually interesting and moving? What does it say about us as human beings, what does it say about who we are and what we think about the world around us. My name is Olivier Diaz, uh, by the way, and uh, again I'm joined with by Viola and Claudia and I'll let them introduce themselves. How about you, Viola?
3: Uh, hi, I'm Viola. Um, I graduated uh, from McGill last uh, spring in anthropology and biology and I'm now doing a project at Building 21 and helping out with uh, these kinds of events.
4: Hi, I'm Claudia. Um, I'm an ex-fellow from Building 21. I studied linguistics at McGill and at Edinburgh.
1: Why don't you tell us about your PhD proposal?
4: Yeah, my PhD proposal is actually on metaphor, not on whether computers can write metaphors, which would be interesting, but more on how humans use metaphor and what that can tell us about human cognition.
1: But you you are using computers, no?
4: I might be using computers. Okay. We all use computers. We all
1: use computers. That's that's a good one. Okay, so but before we continue, let's uh, let's give our listeners an idea of who was present with us. Viola.
3: Uh, yeah. So we had uh, well two groups of people. We had everyone who was there in person. So me, Viola, Olivier, Anita, who is co-founder of B21, David Java Johnston, who is a mentor here at B21. And then we were also joined by Emile and
4: Olive, who are two current B21 fellows.
1: How about those online, Claudia?
4: Yeah, so online there was me, Claudia. Then there was also Yuval, uh, a PhD student in music at McGill. Um, and Damien, who is an ex-fellow and also ex-mentor slash employee from Building 21 and who's currently uh, doing a master's at McGill. And finally, there was also Rasha who's also an ex-fellow from Building 21 and a current McGill student.
1: All right, thank you. So uh, just a word or two for our listeners. And when we first discussed this, uh, do you remember what came through your mind?
3: The two questions didn't seem particularly connected to me at first. And then thinking more and more about it, my first thought was, it doesn't really matter if a computer's poetry can be sublime or not what matters is the result and if you end up with something beautiful then i don't think it matters too much who came up with it
1: that's actually something you said during the actual talk right you and i had some sort of an argument about this (laughs) maybe maybe okay Uh, let's let's uh let's just uh, pause here and uh, look at this argument because it's an interesting one so the way the computers create artwork is different, but I think the most important one right now is GPT-3. So GPT-3, it's an AI, it's it's based on billions of words, and it seems to be able to create once in a while, not always, texts, whether poetry or, or fiction, short text usually, and sometimes these texts are really interesting, and one of our colleagues here at Building 21, David Javé Johnston, used that same thing to create poetry. But first, uh, the, the, the whole question is, should we... Look at an artwork as not only the artwork itself, but should we look at what's behind it, the man or the woman behind it wanting to say something? Uh, Claudia, I know you have a different point of view on this.
4: I think one of the conclusions we reached is that intention is important in helping us relate to an artwork So we would relate to an artwork more if we can assume that it's been created by a human, that it's the product of embodied experience, that the emotions and the experiences underlying the artwork are something that we could also experience ourselves and find in our own lives. Therefore, when there is no intention, it can have this creepy effect because something is mimicking human experience without actually... Having it,
1: and this is not exactly how you see it, uh, Viola. Uh,
4: no, not really. I
3: think that the end result is more in in this particular case um, is more important than the intention behind it. Also, because we've been around things that mimic natural behaviors for a very long time, like even just you know animation or or movie. Uh, there's no actual movement happening in any of those. It's uh, an effect of the lights, an effect of one frame after the other. And it mimics movement.
1: You know, it reminds me of a something that's in 1984. So at one point in 1984, uh, Winston is with Julia and they're hiding somewhere among the proletarian. If I remember well, they had made love or something and they're drinking coffee and they go to the window. Uh, It's been a long time, but what they see is this older woman putting clothes up to dry and she's singing that love song that seems to be popular at that point. And Winston says, well, another pop song or love song that's been created by machines by the party that has no it has no real intention behind it. It's just a series of of, of structures that we've recognized are quite moving for human beings, but there's actually no real attempt to talk about love in it but anyway uh let's move on and uh let's talk about jave's book rewrite so just a couple of thoughts on it so david johnston jave wrote this uh, actually created this small ai program he inputted into this program many 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 poems that he found on the web on on different databases and every morning uh, his, his program would write spewed essentially <laughs> uh, lots of words and David would keep the best ones and I think he would edit out the ones he didn't like and just keep the best one. But as far as I know, he never actually did more than just take out. He never restructure the poems. And he published a book, 12 volumes actually, <laughs> of his computer. And some of it is quite beautiful, which is sort of the input for this talk and this podcast. So Viola, we we did a contest on social media. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. So what we did was we took some poems, I think it was four altogether, some AI and some written by humans, and we asked people to guess which ones were written by a machine and which ones were written by a human.
1: Right. Can you read them for us?
3: The first one is, Orchid wet, lethal tangibles, in the unraveled blood songs, In the birds that feed on the thoughtless void, on the fertile whispers of pollen bent beneath the past.
1: Bird that feed on the thoughtless void? Mm -hmm. That's quite beautiful. Okay, how about the second one?
3: Presentiment is that long shadow on the lawn, indicative that suns go down, the notice to the startled grass that darkness is about to pass.
1: Wow, okay. How about the third one?
3: So this one uh, actually has a title, Uh, No one now but can love me. The ink within my heart is more than an elated room.
1: The ink within my heart. Okay, those are quite beautiful lines. Mm -hmm. So, give us the results.
4: Oh, we have one last one, I think. Oh, we
1: have have one last? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, okay.
4: It's a very short one. So it goes... um, You you remember it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I believe the universe is constructed to make death.
1: Wow. So you know the results, and you know which ones were written by a human and which ones were written by an AI. Uh, Claudia, why don't you give us the results?
4: Yeah, people did have quite a good hunch. The first poem about orchids and uh, pollen bent beneath the past was voted majoritarily as an AI poem. Which um, it was. And it was, and it was, yeah, it was a bit too weird, this one. A bit too creative, let's say. But then with the other poems, people were more divided. The human poem by Emily Dickinson uh, about presentiment um, was voted by some as AI. And the poem about the ink within my heart had people divided pretty much half-half and in fact, I think that
3: even once it was revealed that it was an AI poem, we still had some contention about whether it was really computer-created or uh, human-created.
4: Yeah, indeed, because as Olivier said, there was some human intervention. Jave, the author of rewrites, he took out the bits which he found most compelling, most interesting, even though he didn't edit them in any way. Um, and then the last poem about death is surprisingly, also by AI.
1: Why surprisingly, Claudia?
4: Um, Because it is a true statement, in a way. The universe does make death, and for something to, I don't know, to be able to pick up on uh, the destructive nature of the universe without having embodied experience, it's pretty cool that an algorithm could get there. (laughs)
1: all right it is pretty cool so now we're going to listen to uh, David talk about the actual uh, the actual process uh, for his book how he came up with rewrite and what he thinks it means uh, for him
0: yeah I could it's a mixture of human plus AI in a way so in fact the questions uh, it's, it's more hybrid poetry in some sense like there's, there's massive amounts of output that you get from these neural networks. And then it was simply a case of carving out and finding the extracting the morsels that were already
1: put. So you, did, you didn't write anything and you didn't edit it. I, oh yeah. I no, it. but you, you cut down, you didn't change. I cut, yeah, yeah. But you didn't <laughs> change sentences, did you? No,
0: not very often. Yeah, like I wrote 12 books, 4,500 poems in one year because you're, you've got a huge mountain of text and then you just, all you need to do is get rid of the crap, so things go very, very fast. Did you do it rapidly, like based yes. on intuition? Or did you... Yeah. Okay. Well, relatively rapidly. More rapidly than you could sit down and say, I'm gonna be incredibly inspired every morning for a year in order to write, you know, how many poems would that be? Did you love any of the
4: poems in particular?
0: I love many of them, yeah, it's it's so very, very they're very, very, very beautiful. Did you write the titles? No, 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 it's, all of it's AI generated. And do you feel of ownership over it? In some way, in the same way that someone chiseling a piece of stone would feel ownership about the construct because someone else approaching this boulder or this mountain would yeah. find something else there. But inevitably we'd all find something there that is equivalent to beauty um, or the sublime or, Uh, the magnificent edifice of culture that we all believe we're creating. And then in another level, there's a question of, because the algorithm is trained on massive, massive corpus, it's emulating humans anyway. So isn't the algorithm itself a kind of human language based repository mechanism that is like a cognitive system, like the architecture of the brain, the child absorbing language, like a little jellyfish, and eventually begin to talk like a theoretical poetic animal or whatever we speak, whatever idiom we choose to replicate in our world. So I don't see a firm line. I, I don't know if we could consider ourselves algorithms. Like humans wrote the, the neural network, humans invented this kind of language. The neural network and absorbed our language and now regurgitates and now a human comes along and says, I'm gonna sculpt that language to extract something that reflects a notion of poetry and so it's not remarkable you would find beauty in it so i do think that with human poetry when we look at something that's genuinely beautiful and profoundly interesting uh and this is especially true with translations that it's a question of does the translation carry the, the beauty between languages or does it lose it loses the 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 nourishing quality of the poetry but retains the form and so this is perhaps what you're looking for because there's no experiential entity that's derived the the poetic language from an experience from the chain of experience from the parent sequence of causal events this is tends to be our criteria is the poet the repository or carrier of a kind of cathartic charge Which the poetry then becomes capable of holding. But in this case, the language as a totality, like the collective dream of humanity, we were speaking about that earlier. This collective dream of humanity is the corpus of human language that we've all, all our ancestors, the human family has created this enormous mountain of language. And that's where the crystallized repositories of aesthetic beauty are. And when we find this intention there, it's maybe accidental and maybe machining but it's the same glimmer of beauty that we find if we encounter something sublime anywhere else
1: so this was david uh, talking about his uh, book it's actually quite interesting i encourage everyone to buy it and read it it's quite a moving experience moving in the sense that uh, it does destabilize you (laughs) Uh, because some of the things as you said uh, claudia they're quite moving and actually asks the fundamental question, what does it mean that pattern recognition, which is essentially what AI is doing, pattern recognition allows for beauty to emerge? So Anita at one point during that discussion asked the following question, uh, when you encounter something that is sublime, is it sublime because it reflects the feeling of another person? So of course, is it sublime also because the structure, the symmetry, I mean, it's not the only thing, but is the feeling of another person an integral part of that sublime? That is the fundamental question. Will I ask Viola to intervene here because she's dying to say something?
3: Um, No, I was just gonna say, it depends what exactly we're talking about because sublime can of course um, refer to a piece of artwork of some kind, but we also use it to describe natural landscapes, for example, and those, as far as I think, weren't created by any particular person. So the fact that they're sublime doesn't have to do with intention. It doesn't have to do with another person's feelings or thoughts. It's You know you look at the night sky, it's stunning. It's a bunch of balls of fire, but it doesn't make it any less beautiful. It doesn't make it any less moving. So I think that the same logic applies to, to artwork in the sense that, it, again, it can be interesting to know the background. It can maybe add something to the feeling of sublime. But no, I don't think it's integral.
0: Claudia?
4: Yeah, uh, actually I'm going to pick up on an idea by Olivier who said during the talk that what he cares about when he sees an artwork is intention and what the artist is trying to tell the viewer. For example, if we take prehistorical artwork like the caves in Lascaux where we can see hands of people living from that time and printed on the rock, that's quite moving because it survived time of course and because it connects us with the intention of the people who put their hands in some product and painted the walls. I don't know how they did it, I'm sorry. I didn't study anthropology. But um, yes, so for that very reason we can find it moving because it allows us to connect with another human. So maybe my question would be, when we go to a museum, do we go there because we want to see something aesthetic or is it because we have some curiosity about our society, about our culture, about basically the human agents who shape the artistic landscape?
1: Thank you, Claudia. And I think to answer your question also, Viola, I think there's a difference between the sublime in a beehive, for example, and the sublime of... Prehistoric art, right? So the the painting on the walls of Lescu, I think both are sublime but in a different way. And I think, at least personally, I'm looking for different things when I look at it. When I see the sublime of an animal construction, whatever it is, or an animal expression, whatever it is, or mountains, landscape, uh, night sky, you know, it's more me putting the sublime into it. It's more my projection of the sublime of what it means to be human in that immensity. When I see Glasgow, or when I see a beautiful painting or a beautiful poem, there is the beauty in the structure, because structure is important, the balance, the symmetry, uh, the color, the richness, the texture of something. But that's not enough. I also need or want, and maybe that's my own, you know, my own bias, to know that behind it, there's a human being who's trying to say something about what it means to be human. For me, it's, it's a big part of it. And as you were saying, uh, Claudia, when you see prehistoric art and you're wondering 30,000, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, people who looked very much like us, physically, mentally, they had essentially the same body as we do with the same mental capacity. They were trying to say something about something. We don't know what it is and we'll never know, but they were trying to say something about the world around them and, and why did they go deep into these caves, which was probably extraordinarily dangerous. There's something, there's like a message there, right? It's like the Rosetta Stone. What What does it mean? What do they want to say? And I find that moving. And, you know, the, the example of the universe is made to create death. If a human being comes up with that sentence, that line, to me it's much deeper than just pattern recognition, even though the line is the same. Viola?
3: I agree with what you're saying in a sense that I think it definitely adds to it when especially when it's something historical or especially if there's some kind of human background, it adds to it. It's one of the ways something can be made more sublime. It's not the only way. And I think that there are a lot of other factors or a lot of other characteristics that can not replace it because they're not at all equatable, but that can create the same effect for me. So Mm -hmm. if something is beautiful enough, then the fact that it doesn't have intention behind it is kind of balanced out.
4: Yeah, and, and I think we talked a lot about creativity in viewing just as much as in producing an artwork. Mm-hmm. So when we listen to a piece of music, for example, the beauty we perceive in it might depend a lot on the context. Are we on a long ride in a car? Um, are we with some high school friends? Um, all these things, they they factor in. All that to say that there is definitely creativity in viewing which results from the connections that we make and we do pour meaning into something that we view as soon as we start connecting it with our experiences with previous input. Yeah, But Anita, during the talk, she also brought up the fact that AI artwork does display some kind of intention insofar as it's been created by humans. um, Humans have designed the algorithms which determine what information is being filtered. And in that sense, those algorithms say something about our human experience as well. And they do convey some form of agency.
1: Yeah, but Emil intervened a couple of times. And Emil is a a, a student who's doing his master in law. And he intervened a couple of times. And one of the things he said is that For him, he sees art as having the urge to say something, to express something, right? So, yes, AI poetry reflects something. It reflects essentially a resonance of, because it's based on billions of words that we've written. So it expresses something about the inner human experience. But it doesn't have an urge to say something, to explain something. And I think that was actually a very interesting uh, point, Maybe at least for me, the the, the emptiness of artificial intelligence-generated art, and and I agree with you, there are some beautiful things being made. Is that it doesn't have the urge to do anything? It doesn't have the as, and I think we've mentioned it also. It doesn't fear death. It doesn't have the urge to have experiences before they're actually, you know, they actually disappear, which we all do, right? Uh, to me, part of the artistic urge is, is the fear of the fear of disappearance, your, your own disappearance, the disappearance of those you love, of, you know, humans, animals, even landscapes, even, you know, things around you do disappear once in a while, they do die. And I think that without this urge, I'm not sure there would be art and machines, of course, don't have this urge. So maybe one of the keys for AI, for artificial general intelligence would be to give machines the fear of death. And I actually think, I have no proof of that, of course, but I actually think that if we lived eternally, or if we, let's just say if we lived for 400 years, I'm not sure we would produce art.
4: I think we would. We would produce it because (laughs) time is relative, and maybe if we lived for 100 years, it would seem to us like it's not such a long time. And the Bible does report people who lived for 700 (laughs) years, so (laughs) I think they still (laughs) made art. Um, yeah, we pretty much concluded that uh, fear of death is fundamental for displaying intention, for having an urge to create, uh, because when we realize that things do disappear, that's when we start seeking out their meaning more.
3: Yeah, I agree with Claude. I think that no matter how long we lived, we'd still want to create art. Um, one thing I, I would say about that is, like, little kids art all the time I think that and some of it is scribbles on a piece of paper but other things can be quite quite beautiful and I don't I think especially in the first few years it takes a while before you really understand that you know eventually you're going to disappear and eventually the world's going to disappear and all that I don't think you've fully registered that yet and yet that doesn't stop them in fact usually children are the ones who are most happy to make art all the time you kind of for some reason, tend to lose that a bit over time, at least many people do. Whereas most children, they're bored, you give them a piece of paper and a pencil and they're going to draw, they're going to do things.
4: Um, And I don't think that the finality of death has gotten to them yet. Okay. Yeah, And this also connects to something else Emil was saying. So um, He also mentioned that if we only judge art based on its aesthetic value, we would end up abandoning and not considering a lot of shitty artworks (laughs) um like people who for example are practicing their art and who are not very good at it yet you would still want to consider their activity as artistic i think that just points to how difficult it is to find a definition for what art is if it's not just the beauty if it's not just the fear of death if it's not just the urge but maybe the urge could remain considering that a kid probably does have that urge And maybe art is about testifying your presence. It's just about making it heard and making it felt and experiential that you're actually present.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So we also discussed, because so far we've been discussing a lot of uh, text-based art, a little bit of uh, image-based, but mostly text-based. But we also had somebody uh, who was there, a student named Yuval, and he was a specialist of uh, music, computer-generated computer music, or at least he studied it. And I think he had a lot of interesting things to say about this. Why don't we listen to
2: him? So, okay. So the thing I'm doing in music tech here uh, is more in um, psychoacoustics, which is sort of anywhere between the biomechanics of how we hear, but a little bit also of cognition. And then there's people more on the music cognition side of things, which is, higher level sort of processing and responses and whatever related to music. Um, And I think listening to AI generated things, even like the state of the art things, uh, it's where, I mean, even humans still don't have a very good grasp of what happens when we listen to music. And we certainly don't have the computing power to model that just yet. Or even if we do, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't see it. (laughs) <laughs> even if the computer is doing it we're, we know so little about it that we wouldn't necessarily uh, be able to to know oh the model is doing so and so we could maybe track something like engagement you know you could or, or excitement or all sorts of little measures that you could have people sit in a lab and then sort of fine-tune the AI to maximize some kind of you know mess around with the musical novelty and the the the, the dynamic range of the different parameters it's using and so on to sort of engage listeners in some abstract sense, but it's always going to be, as far as the technology is right now, removed from that human experience. And I think in poetry, whether it's found poetry or it's made by an AI that's reflecting some general sense of human language with all its biases and racism and sexism and whatever's in there and, and beauty and, and any, anything else, there's still, basically what I find interesting in these things is the ability to to have these aesthetic objects reflect some kind of inner connections and associations or something that move us and it's easier for someone from my own culture to write a poem that would move me than someone from a different culture and it's easier from someone using the same language and it's easier for someone and so on and so on and if someone from a different culture and a different language writes something it could move me in a different way either in a way that is abstracted from our particular space and time and culture and whatever, or because it's so foreign and confusing that that in itself is an interesting experience. So there's a lot of ways to look at this problem, but I don't think, I don't find AI-generated things interesting in that they mimic humans. I find them interesting in that they show me what's being filtered in the way that they're made. I don't know if that it makes any sense. Yeah, and so I, I still find like this very interesting aesthetic experience, even if these things aren't a general human intelligence. For example, in music, and I think in poetry, the same thing, you'll need to model the listeners or the readers or the audience's experience through time and take into account things that musicians take into account when they perform without thinking about it, context of the pieces that came before and after, and sort of some you know, mirror neurons of like, okay, we just had this quiet part, and now I'm going to do a loud part, and that's going to be different because of context through time, right? No one necessarily thinks about that when they're performing it, but they know that there was a quiet part, and they know that this loud part is unexpected, and so they know its dramatic effect on the listeners. We're not even there yet, and so general human intelligence that can actually tell me an interesting story about their life, we're, uh, I think we're farther away from that, although it'll be interesting. (laughs) considering it's limited, then what I see through these AI generated things is all the pieces that aren't abstract. What data did you feed into it? You know, what kind of selection process are you using? What kind of computing power or whatever? And so I, and and maybe it's because I know too much about how it works, right? Because I'm I'm dealing with these things for other reasons in music tech. And so But then it still reveals something about all the humans involved or all the wherever you collected the data or it still reveals something about the human experience, music, poetry, whatever it is.
1: Okay, so, Claudia, to follow up on this, uh, you mentioned something during the talk that I during the discussion that I find really interesting. You want to say a word or two about this?
4: Yeah, um, we started talking about AI artwork in the context of poetry and of written text with GPT-3, but AI can also produce music. And people started experimenting with that quite early on in the 80s. Namely, there's an opera composer, David Cope, who designed a computer program to help him get rid of the composer's block. And the program did output moving pieces, I guess, once they were edited and interpreted by humans. But listening to a piece of music, a moving piece of music, and knowing it is written by AI would not threaten me as much as a written text. With a written text, I would feel more betrayed, perhaps, if I'd felt moved and later on learned that it was only the doing of some pattern recognition program.
3: Why do you think that is? Why do you think that music would, uh, like, you would mind less knowing that it was AI music
4: rather than AI poetry? I guess because birds sing and sounds exist uh, very much independently of humans, whereas language is often uh, defined you know, as a cornerstone of what differentiates humans from other life forms. And it is also a direct conveyor of intention, direct conveyor of human experiences. We use it to talk about human experiences. So it feels as though it's more corrupted or perverted when it's being used by something that does not have experiences.
1: It's something that Jevy actually said, right? He talked about his program and he said it's like a genius child with no experience, right? So I think he said he wants to do he wants to talk about this and about that and it's got all these tools and but has no experiences. So so it goes back actually, you know, your betrayal thing goes back a bit to what you're saying, Viola. So imagine a seven or eight year old young boy or a young girl right imagine that they're just playing with words and they come up with two three beautiful lines would you feel that it is worth something
3: yes absolutely you know if it's two or three beautiful lines yeah it doesn't really matter how it came about and yeah maybe they're just playing around with words maybe though there's something a little bit more that that goes there and i also think that on the whole, you know, when people write poetry, when humans specifically write poetry or anything else, there's a certain element of not spewing out words, not putting out words out at random. But, you know, you, you kind of play around with words, you say, okay, wait, which one sounds better? Okay, we're gonna do this here. Some choices are very deliberate, but also, you know, the same way that when we talk, we don't know exactly what we're saying. Like I have no idea what the next word that's coming out of my mouth is gonna be. I have an idea of what I want to say, but the exact things aren't there. So I think that, you know, to some level, it remains a little bit of, not random, but not fully deliberate, even when adults write, when older children write, um, or compose music, or any other artwork. Same way if a a child draws something really beautiful, then it's really beautiful. End of story.
4: Yeah, and we do share this in common with AI that we perform pattern recognition a lot. And actually, that's determining the words we use when we speak. Uh, As you said, without thinking too much about it, we mostly remember chunks of words and phrases. Therefore, we are similar to the AI, or rather the AI is similar to us because we've designed it in such a way. And with those network models, I mean, you could claim they're pretty credible You know, in mimicking how it is that humans also find patterns. And in this sense, a kid can accidentally find beauty in the same way that an AI can accidentally find beauty in the immense repository of human language.
3: Adding on to that, to go back to the composer you were talking about, David Cope, Um, when he was interviewed, I think it was a radio lab episode called Musical DNA, he said, you know, basically the AI that he constructed was analyzing many, many pieces of music, and then coming up with something based on that. And he says in the interview, like, you know, he could do that. It's pattern recognition. It's not very complicated. But it would take him 10 years, whereas it takes the AI 10 minutes. And so that's why he uses the AI. It's something humans can do. It just takes us a lot longer. same reason we use a calculator, for example.
4: Yeah, and I think this leads us to a point that Damien, who was present during the talk, raised concerning the question of authorship in Jave's book rewrites. Um, and Damien is also a past fellow from Building Twenty One, and he was a program assistant for a really long time. He did some wonderful job. Therefore, why don't we listen to him?
5: I'm, I'm still sort of like thinking about the the question of like authorship in in your in your books, Jave, the rewrites. I think that's pretty interesting, right? I, I don't want to diminish the fact that there's something categorically different about artificial intelligence from like previous human inventions, but but there does seem to be something sort of fundamental about this relationship that you have between like the thing that you've designed, you know, you and the other programmers um, and whatever it is that you're doing independently as an artist, right? Like I'm reading this book, right now on the side it's kind of interesting it's um uh it's about the writing of um anti Oedipus, which is like it's a collaboration right between Deleuze and Guattari right and the the way it was written was that um Guattari would write these completely chaotic stream of consciousness letters and he would mail them to Deleuze and then Deleuze would organize them and compile them and then the compilations became the book so effectively it's the exact same methodology that you're describing right so Guattari was the art was the AI Deleuze was the author <laughs> right and so uh you know and and almost coincidentally like in the history of their collaborations Deleuze's name comes first on the authorial list and generally people refer to their collaborations as Deleuzean philosophies like almost sort of by happenstance he's the one who gets remembered as the creative insight but you could also look at it as like okay the actual like in your analogy, the creative sort of child genius, right like the preconditioned unmediated flow, et cetera, was Guattari, that was the that was the creative insight, and then we had to subtract some of the creativity to make it tangible and to make it legible um but I don't know there there's a this this idea of like there being something autonomous to human creativity on which human creativity depends is I think like very true right so like from the perspective of like anthropology like that's sort of what culture is you know um like your culture is autonomous insofar as you're born into it it's made of like material relations that think for you you know you don't have to think about how to walk around because the streets are structured in a certain sense and so on right um and so uh you know there's no coincidence like Levi Strauss in like his late career, the the anthropologist, right? Like he was obsessed with analyzing myths. The way he would do it was he would write down every like narrative beat in a myth on like a cue card and then he would like shuffle them and like rearrange them and like try to reassemble them into pieces to find like the minimal logic that all of them were following. Basically like trying to determine the generative model underlying all of mythic expression. Very similar to the type of thing that you're describing Yuval of like, okay, can I find like the minimal generative principles underlying like musical composition, right? Uh, It's a similar sort of project. And, uh, you know, he died in the early 2000s. And so he was convinced that uh, eventually computers would replace his cue card methodology. And you could just plug in like all of like human mythological Creative expression into some sort of computer program. And then it would like print out a set of rules, basically. Um, and so, you know, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. This is this is the this is the problem. I mean, this is also like a methodological problem that plagues um, any sort of I mean, like the whole principle of anthropological analysis is you start with empirical variability and you end with a model that that simplifies it, something that has like comparative purchase. And then so you always end up in this quandary where it's like, okay. Is the model just a methodological nicety, meaning like, okay, it's a heuristic, or am I actually describing something like inherent to the phenomena, right? So it's like, if uh, there's a sort of famous um, philosophical analogy about this, where like, a biologist is observing a flock of birds flying in tandem, like they're forming like clouds, you know, clouds of birds. And they ask a mathematician, like, can you come up with an explanation as to how the birds are not colliding with each other? You know, like, how do they do that? And the mathematician comes up with like a set of principles, right? And the mathematician says, okay, well, if the birds follow these three rules, then they don't collide with each other. And then the biologist is like, okay, well, there must be something in the neuronal architecture of the birds that like is isomorphic to these rules, right? But like philosophically, this doesn't actually obtain because it, it's, it's true that if they follow those rules, they wouldn't collide. But that doesn't mean that the rules actually describe anything internal to the bird right? So that's always the challenge when it comes to these like synthesizing AI things. So to connect it, because I'm going all over the place, but like to connect it to the original question, um, Olivier and co, I would say like what's sort of challenging about this point vis-a-vis poetry and and AI is that if we create an AI that creates something analogous enough to poetry that we can't distinguish it from human poetry, then that doesn't mean that the structure of the thing that we design which can produce these results has anything to do with the way that we produce poetry it it just means that the output is indistinguishable
1: okay so that was Damien with his uh, Deleuze and Guattari and uh, you also also um, talking about this but uh, you know that Damien talked about that the main condition for creativity in human is order right so it reminds me of what you were saying uh, Viola about The unintentionality of language, which is, you know, quite true when we speak, things just sort of come out, right? And sometimes we have to think about it, but oftentimes they just sort of come out naturally, which, you know, sometimes doesn't serve us very well. (laughs) But I would argue that when I create poetry, when I teach poetry, creative writing and poetry, it's exactly the other thing that I'm saying. I tell my students everything has to be intentional, the the space on the page, punctuation. I think that the difference between oral and written artwork, or at least you know artwork that is produced on some sort of platform, music or paper or canvas. My perception, and it's not everyone's perception, and it's not everyone's philosophy, but my philosophy is that things have to be intentional, even when they're not completely voluntarily intentional. So if you look at Pollock, for example. Not everything is control, but there's intention in sort of creating this sort of shape that he was able to create, that he was actually one of the only ones to be able to create it. So even within the chaos and the randomness of what he was doing, there was some sort of order he was trying to achieve. And I think what makes good poetry or good writing, good fiction, very different from GPT-3, for example, is that there is surprise there is intention there is a desire to create order and within that order that's that to me is the key is within the order of what you're writing there's also something you're saying it's not only the content that's saying something the structure itself is saying something that's where also where i don't agree with the idea of the the kid writing the randomness for me is beautiful But something is lacking to it. I don't disagree. Randomness can be beautiful and and coincidences can be beautiful and pattern recognition can be beautiful. But that's just what it is. And I'm just looking for something behind it.
4: Yeah, like some additional layer.
1: Yes. Mm. The desire for understanding, Mm -hmm. order. You know me, I've always said that to me literature is a means to an end. It's not the end. For me, artwork is a means to an end also. Mm -hmm. It's not the end. The end is to understand what it means to be human. So, which I think brings us to sort of a bit of our conclusion. Viola, do you want to start? Well, as is
3: uh, pretty frequent for B21, we didn't come up with a, <laughs> a full conclusion. But I think there is a difference between AI artwork and human artwork. It has a great deal to do with intention, uh, the difference between the two. And I think this is one of the debates that we're never going to stop having as humans. As long as there are humans, as long as there are computers, this is something that we're going to be talking about. As a more personal conclusion, one of the critiques against machines being able to create artwork has often been that, you know, the machines are going to be doing all the creativity, it's going to stamp out human creativity. And I really don't think that's true. There's a quote that was actually originally used to describe physical books versus ebooks, which I like very much, which is that Paper books are no more threatened by uh, e-books than stairs are by escalators. And I feel kind of the same way about machine artwork. You know, they're two comparable things. They have a lot in common, but they're not the same thing. And I see no reason why they should be mutually exclusive.
1: All right. How about you, Claudia? Thank you, Piela.
4: Yeah, that's a very good point that they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. And I think Yuval mentioned at some point that AI has just come to be part of the landscape of human possibilities when it comes to creating art, and we can use it as a tool and gauge whether it's threatening, whether it's serving us, and its purpose should be to serve us, right? Um, I think one of the conclusions uh, we reached and which we also posted about is that AI artwork allows us to uncover hidden beauty in the massive collective repository of human experiences. So things we wouldn't have access to if we were to only use our brains. For example, it could take us 10 years to go through the same amount of data that a computer can go through in 10 minutes. But yeah, we also concluded that while it can mimic human products, like AI can make art, it is still fundamentally different from human products because the process is different. The AI is performing a task it has no creative urge, it is not afraid of death, and it does not have embodied experience. But it does seek structure in a way, maybe a more naive kind of structure. It still does seek it, which does make it creative to some extent, like a bit of a genius child. And ultimately it mediates between our intention as humans who write algorithms, who create computers, and our artistic creations. So. The AI sort of intercedes between us as human agents and the beauty we're seeking.
1: Right. So thank you to both of you. This was a fantastic, great uh, conclusion to this really interesting I'm not sure talk. It's really I'm not sure. (laughs) It's perfectly I'm (laughs) not sure talk. I think uh, both of your points were really well taken. I agree with you, Viola. The idea, of course, is not mutually exclusive. I would see it more as a multiplier, an amplifier of human creativity, right? It allows us, as you said, Claudia, allow us to go places we haven't been yet because it expands the space of possibilities for us. And probably in the future, we'll have great human-based art that has been amplified, transformed, made richer, more interesting by AI. So thank you very much to both of you. Uh, this was great. And we'll have uh, other podcasts uh, soon coming up and thank you all uh, to all of our listeners. This is Olivier Diense and this was a Building 21 talk.